This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Tuesday, April 24th, 2018, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I could tell you some dumb, dumb reasons to vote for a candidate. Let's send Washington a message. Let's send Olympia a message. Let's send Omaha a message. And that one's especially dumb because Lincoln is the capital of Nebraska. Or the whole let's take back our government or the my governor can beat up your governor, vote Jesse Ventura reason. But just about the dumbest reason that I could think of to vote for a politician in 2018 is this. The media also ignores Hillary's Uranium One deal and more. We don't need to investigate our president. We need to arrest Hillary. Republican Don Blankenship stands with President Trump. Yes, I will address your problems via the prosecution of Hillary Clinton. Now, today, in 2018, even though she is not charged with a crime, but I, a freshman senator, will bring this prosecution because that is how the law and facts work. And that is how you will be better off with me in office. Better off than someone who doesn't spend a lot of time and attention saying, let's jail a private citizen who hasn't held elected office for almost a decade. Yeah. But that last part of the ad, the standing with President Trump part, that is all over the messaging of many Republican candidates this year. Not just standing with him, but by trying to be him. Let's look at the Indiana race to get the Republican nomination. Here's Todd Rokita in an ad. I'm Todd Rokita, and I'll proudly stand with our president and Mike Pence to drain the swamp. I'm Todd Rokita, and I approve this message. Now, the visual is Rokita pulling out and putting on his MAGA hat. Not to be outdone, Luke Messer also running to try to be the Republican Senate nominee in Alabama. I'm Luke Messer. I get teamwork. That's why I back President Trump's agenda. Tax cuts, pro-life, and funding for our troops. Now, I had read in the Times about all these candidates in Indiana trying to be Trump, and Rokita was mentioned as carrying a Trump cardboard cutout to campaign rallies. See, and I thought it was Jared who was dealing with cutouts all this time. Hmm. And then I also read in that Times article that Messer had been calling Rokita Lion Todd because Rokita had a bunch of yard signs that said, Todd Rokita, endorsed by Trump, Pence, big letters, Indiana team leaders, smaller letters, meaning Rokita was endorsed by some people who also endorsed Trump and Pence. So the Times wrote about this, and the two congressmen were sniping at each other, trying to trump each other with their trumpiness. And the National Journal had its own story about the Indiana race, and I said to myself, yeah, I read this. Oh, 
Oh, but no, because the National Journal story was about a third Republican who's barely mentioned in the Times story. He, too, aggressively claiming the mantle of Trumpdom because he's a political outsider and those two guys are career politicians. That guy's name is Mike Braun, and the journal writes, Braun is cheekily portraying himself as a mini-Trump. I guess the maxi-Trump would have exploded by now. But Braun is leading in the polls. He's the one likely to be judged Trumpiest, by which I mean he is likely at this point to get the Republican nomination. Now, will it work? I mean, will that help him get elected to the Senate? I agree it's a good play for the Republican primary, and I know you can't win the championship unless you survive the semifinals, but the fact is, Trump isn't even that popular in Indiana. Yeah, he won Indiana by a wide margin, and this is why the Cook Political Report currently rates the state as a toss-up. You know, Joe Donnelly, the Democratic senator, very well could be in trouble. You know, that's what toss-up means. But like I said, Hoosiers don't particularly like Trump. Gallup did a poll of every state, and they found that Trump's approval rating in Indiana a couple months ago, 44%. His disapproval rating, 51%. So someone with those numbers would be a terrible person to attach yourself to in usual times, i.e. times in which we are not living. But consider that Indiana represents the 18th highest state for Trump job approval, even though that job approval is 7% more disapproved. The sad thing would be is if this attempt to attach oneself to a remote political figure distracts from the truly pressing issues of the day, issues that matter to Indianans, to Hoosiers, at the kitchen tables, to the lunch bucket guys. You know the issues, like putting a grandma from suburban New York in handcuffs for a crime she's been cleared of. On the show today, if you like that talk of jailing the former presidential nominee, you'll love my interview about James Comey being a leaker. And in the spiel, the very important issue of royal pulchritude, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, just gave birth, and she looks like a million bucks, which is a fraction of her actual net worth. But first, when I conducted the interview about the classification process, I thought it was interesting, but now I will bestow upon it the retroactive designation of compelling because that is, from how I now understand things, just how it's done. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. President Donald Trump has called James Comey a number of things. Worst FBI director ever, a slime ball, two words, and a leaker, an illegal leaker. Those are the things I'd like to focus on. James Comey did give four memos to a friend of his who is a law professor at Columbia. Two of those memos were unclassified. One had parts that were redacted, and one was retroactively classified. That's an interesting classification. Luckily, I have an expert on the line with me. He's Bradley P. Moss. He specializes in litigation on matters relating to national security and security clearance law. He's a partner at the Mark S. Zaid law firm, 
and the executive director of the James Madison Project. How are you, Bradley? Pretty good. How you doing? I'm, I'm well. So James Comey did write seven memos, but the four I guess we're focusing on are ones that he gave to a friend who perhaps was acting as his lawyer. And what can you tell me about the classification status of those four memos? Sure. So what we know, at least from the public reports, is that two of them were and remain completely unclassified and always were unclassified. One has been retroactively classified, I think, at the secret level, and one um, is unclassified but with various specific classified redactions uh, in parts, particular words that have been redacted. So the way the classification regime works is that it's all set forth in executive order. There's no federal law on this. This is purely the creation of the executive branch, uh-huh. specifically coming down from the president. According to the executive order, again, set forth by the president, there are three levels of classification. There's confidential, which is the weakest and uh, simplest level. There's secret and there's top secret. Beyond that, there are compartmentalized ideas of access, things that are known in pop culture references in terms of SCI or sensitive compartmentalized information or SAPs, also known as special access programs. Uh But those are just levels of access. The three classification levels are all that exist in the end in terms of the type of uh, classification of the document. From the president going down, there are what are called original classification authorities. Okay. The president designates any number of individuals to be that. The director of the FBI is one. Okay, so what this means is that the classification that we're talking about, these memos, and these memos are all the conversations that Comey had with President Trump. It was Comey himself who was naming them classified, confidential, secret, unclassified, etc. Is that right? Correct. And he had to do that at the inception of the document as the person creating the memoranda He was writing out the memoranda, and then when he creates it, it's on him to identify it as unclassified, confidential secret, top secret, whatever. Okay, so now the Washington Post is reporting about these four memos, and uh, uh, can we just put two of them aside because there was no classification on them at all? They they shouldn't be a problem. No, there there should be no issue. There should be no issue, though the president does say these are the government's property. Is that true? Yes and no. So there is no, there's no criminal provision, generally speaking, that applies to a former employee, quote unquote, leaking documents that came into their possession that are unclassified um, and leaking that to the press. There are certainly contractual obligations. It could have been if he was if he was the existing director of the FBI and he leaked the memoranda to the New York Times, that would be a basis to fire him. Yeah. But in terms of a criminal context, there is nothing that stops anyone who's previously worked for the U.S. government from disclosing U.S. government information to the media with respect to unclassified information. Yeah, because when, when they say property of the government, that maybe sounds great at first blush, but then you say, wait a minute, isn't the government us? <laughs> isn't the government the people? Well, yeah. Yeah, and, and to be fair to the president, there is a concept of it, U.S. government information, you're not supposed to be disseminating it out. Mm-hmm. But that is, again, that's, more, that's largely a civil and a contractual question. From a criminal standpoint, the only ability the government has to censor former government employees or contractors or military officials, once they've left government service, the only criminal uh, aspect is for classified information. And there's an entire system called pre-publication review that applies 
to individuals such as Director Comey whenever they want to talk about their government service. For instance, his book went through that kind of process. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the two memos that might be subject to this charge of illegal leaking. One has been described as a classified memo with the classified parts redacted. Shouldn't it be called an unclassified memo at that point? Correct. Yes. So that's the one. This is one of the two memo that was given to his friend, Mr. Richmond. Yep. And it is now unclassified or declassified might be the more technical term of art because the classified parts were redacted. The question that arises that the IG is currently looking into and that would General, be relevant yep. from a criminal standpoint is when were those redactions made? And at what point did Mr. Comey do that? Did he do that before he was fired? Up until the moment the president fired Director Comey, Director Comey was an original classification authority and had the ability, without consulting anyone above him if he wanted to, to declassify FBI documents, including his own personal memoranda, yeah. and declassify them in part or in, or in full. So if he created that particular memo and had already declassified it by way of making specific redactions, for future potential use, mm-hmm. then he's fine. But if he did it after May 9th, if on May 10th he starts redacting stuff from his personal memo, that's a problem for the director. He no longer had that authority because he'd been terminated, and then he has a criminal liability issue. Right. So in other words, sort of like when you're a pope, and we haven't had this situation before Pope Benedict Sixteenth, but when you're a pope, you're always right if you speak ex cathedra. When you're an original classification authority and you redact, you've always made the right call. The parts you redact and then you say it's unclassified, you're right. The problem is, if he did it after leaving the FBI, he no longer has that almost magical authority. Absolutely. That's very much correct. Yeah, he's no longer an official U.S. government official. Mm-hmm. He no longer has that authority to do any of that. He had to get pre-publication review of approval. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, has Comey clarified when he did that? And uh, if he hasn't, wouldn't he know that he doesn't have the authority to redact after he's out at the FBI? Yeah, so I don't believe, uh, having listened to the interviews and the testimony, I don't think he's publicly ever clarified this particular detail, which struck me, struck me a little odd because you would assume someone with his extensive experience would know that this could be a potential liability. Mm-hmm. What you find sometimes is people who've been at the top so long kind of forget about those nuances because yeah. they just haven't had to worry about it in years. So it's, it's a concern that the director should certainly have if he indeed tried to make this uh, declassification after he was fired because he no longer had that authority. Maybe he's just being vague because he feels like it. I don't know. And it's certainly what the IG should inquire into to make clear. But if he, in fact, made these redactions before May 9th, he's fine. Okay. So if he made it afterwards, there is a case. This might not be a legal case for him, but you tell me if it is. He could say, well, I'm the original classification authority. I'm the one who classified them. I classified them for a reason. I know that these four sentences were the reason. So even if I lose that authority, I am in possession of the knowledge of what made it classified. I know that crossing out those lines so no one could read it had that been done at the time, this memo would have the same classification as these ones that are unclassified. I guess that's not a legal recourse, but it seems kind of logical to me. That's, it, it would be an interesting public relations and interesting policy argument, but yeah. as a strict 
question of law, if he were in fact prosecuted, the argument would fail. Gotcha. It would simply it simply wouldn't go anywhere. Once you no longer are the an official, uh, sorry, a U.S. government official, and you no longer have that authority as an original classification authority, you can't make those kind of decisions anymore. If he were to have the book thrown at him, so forget who he convinces, but if they were to go after him with the full force and fury for that transgression, just that uh, that one memo we're talking about, what penalties could he face? He could face it's a felony to uh, disclose classified information to unauthorized individuals. He could spend years in prison or face fines in theory. In theory, he could spend up to five years in jail. I don't really anticipate that's what's going to happen. But until we know the actual complete details of what transpired, I don't think anybody could rule it out. Interesting. Okay, now let's talk about this last one, which I really can't understand. Retroactive classification. It seems totally unfair that you could hand over something that it's fine to hand over from a criminal standpoint. And then after the fact, someone could say, oh, yeah, now you've broken the law. Last week, it wasn't breaking the law when you did it. This week, it is. Or am I wrong? Can a retroactive classification actually put someone on the hook and, and give them legal jeopardy? The simplest answer is it depends. There have been very unique circumstances in which the government's been able to pull that off. It kind of did in the Jeffrey Sterling case, which, full disclosure, we had handled parts of his uh, case before it ever got to a criminal proceeding, and then we were conflicted out. But so they had used yeah, that was the James that was the James at, Rising case, right? Yeah, that was it was and Jeffrey Sterling was the one that, that the government accused of having leaked details to James Risen. Right. So they used it to an extent with Jeffrey Sterling, but Jeff was never an original classification authority in any context. He would have been what's only known as a derivative classification authority, which is what most government employees are. The original classification authorities are only the most senior level officials in the government. So even if they were to try to pull that here, I think you'd face a monumental clash in pretrial motions between James Comey's lawyers and the government's lawyers over trying to prosecute him for something they had retroactively classified or upclassified, whatever the term would be in the end, after the fact. I don't foresee them trying that against James Comey. If they're going after him, it's going to be because of the other memo that had the redactions. It's going to be because he didn't properly declassify it before he was fired. And what would be the point of a retroactive classification, especially a retroactive classification to the lowest level of classification? Um, Generally speaking, it's because even though the original creator of the document deemed it uh, to be unclassified upon further review later on, officials take a different view and are worried that disclosure of this particular information could in some even far-fetched manner harm national security. It happens. It certainly could get declassified back down again in a few years. I've seen it. We saw that with Hillary Clinton's situation where some of the emails were uh, that had originally been unclassified were upclassified and then were declassified back down. It happens. That doesn't strike me as too out of the ordinary here so much as Comey viewed it one way, Upon later review, DOJ officials viewed it a different way. When there is retroactive classification, is it usually to the level of confidential, which is the lowest level? Because on the one hand, you would say, well, if it's right on the line, 
uh, and you think it's unclassified, and I think it's classified. I guess the the if it's if it's a close call, it should be classified as if anything confidential. On the other hand, even going to that length seems almost like a waste of time, unless there's real stakes, and you want to make the point that this is secret or top secret. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen it at higher levels than confidential. I think we saw that with some of the stuff in the in Hillary's Clinton, Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, I think in James Comey's case. Uh, whatever was in that memo, and I don't remember what particular details they really were concerned about. I mean, I remember re- reviewing it and kind of rolling my eyes going, okay. Whatever it was, it was just enough for them to be concerned. But in terms of Comey's particular liability, as, yeah. as long as he did the proper declassification when he created the document, he's fine on that one. In your experience, has any th- uh, memo or documents ever been retroactively classified as a way to sort of get the person does stuff like that ever go on? Not in a way anyone could ever prove. <laughs> uh, because to demonstrate that would require evidence of the underlying motive of the individuals making the class, the reclassification determinations that you never have. And a lot of the times it's bureaucracy. You know, yeah. what's, what, what one person originally viewed a, a particular way gets sent to a bunch of other individuals and they come to their own conclusion. Yeah. It, it, that gets the part of the problem that always exists in the classification process. It, it's very subjective, and it's very arbitrary. There's general guidelines on what qualifies for classification, and there's both the executive order and then agency-specific directives and regulations. But in the end, a lot of it comes down to personal you know, idiosyncrasies. Part of it comes down to how particular individuals tend to view the strictness of the the risk national security and different people take different opinions and different views on it. So, I mean, that's always been a problem. It will always be a problem in the classification process. All right. And finally, Brad, just tell me this, what does James Comey have to worry about in terms of this charge that he quote unquote leaked classified documents? The only thing he has to worry about is whether or not he properly dotted his I's and crossed his T's when it came to that document from which he had redacted classified information. If he did that all properly at the inception of the document, or at least before May 9th, then he, in, at least in my view, is fine. He doesn't have liability. No prosecution would go anywhere. He'd probably never hold a clearance again unless he's a constitutional officer. Yeah. But in terms of criminal liability, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, and as far as, as, far as uh, holding a clearance again, have you been watching his book tour? I, I think he's pretty much written that off. Exactly, exactly. Bradley Moss is a specialist in litigation related to national securities and clearance law partner at the Mark S. Zaid Law Firm and the executive director of the James Madison Project, which if you don't know, that is a project seeking to elect another president who weighs less than 100 pounds. Wait, is that what it is? <laughs> yes, exactly. That is, that is completely what it, what it is was. and yep. which has great white yep. wigs. <laughs> I thought so. So it's a transparency organization that was created about 20 years ago that we've revised that basically handles FOIA litigation mostly. Uh, we represent a lot of media clients just trying to pierce the veil of secrecy. I get it. Father of the Constitution. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Absolutely. Have a good one. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. I, along with many other Americans, have been following this horrible story from overseas, drawn to it, yet at the same time kind of disgusted. I am, of course, talking about the birth of the royal baby. Avert your eyes! I kid, I kid. I used to be indifferent about the royal family out of, I'm going to say, slight peak. Why would I, as an American, care about people who owe their status to an inheritance, an inheritance that descends from the very folk that America rebelled against? But you know what? These royals, this current batch, they've been acquitting themselves pretty well lately. Prince Harry did a podcast with Obama. I thought for sure that either I or Guy Raz would be the first to be named the Prince of Podcasts. But alas, Harry gets it. The dude gets everything. But I've gone from indifferent, motivated by a bit of disgust, to indifferent because they just seem benign. They don't exactly rate in my threat matrix. And yet thoughts, I have thoughts. And it's not that their baby is ugly. It is perhaps that my thoughts are ugly. I see these pictures of the proud couple, the proud parents for the third time, William and Catherine, Duchess and Duke of Cambridge, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, if you want to be respective, and I do, I respect them. She is clearly a lovely woman whose heart is full of joy, the Duchess of Cambridge is. This is not to be confused with the Duchess of Cambridge Analytica. She is Rebecca Mercer, whose heart is full of grievance and whose refrigerators are full of human pee. What, you didn't know this? Yes. Before backing Trump, the Mercer's big project was funding a biochemist from Oregon whose side deal was to lose congressional races time and again, but his main gig was he had 14,000 samples of human urine, human urine, human urine <laughs> that he kept in refrigerators on his sheep farm, and that urine don't chill for free, sister. Enter the Mercer's. That's a digression. I am not here to talk about American urine I am here to talk about the British royals. And I cannot shake a certain impression I get when I gaze upon the Duke and Duchess. And it is an impression that is wrong to have. I'm sorry I have it. I am petty for having it. But perhaps you've had it too. Which is to say, and I'll just say it, she is a lot better looking than he is. As in much, much better looking. As in, I will go so far as to say... That if this guy weren't the heir to the British throne, if this guy wouldn't one day be king by the grace of God of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of other realms and territories, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith, if not for that fact, that long series of facts, perhaps a man of William's stature and a woman of Catherine's might not have made it. No, no, it's wrong. It's do not speak of how a person looks. What are looks? Who is to say? Plus issues of kettles and blackness and glass and houses. Who am I to look at these two and say that she is winsome and he more embodies the lose-some side of that equation? What I mean is this. If I put on the television and I saw a person who looked exactly like Catherine and she was presenting the news, as they say in England, I would say yes, that is in keeping with the general attractiveness of cable news female anchors. But if he were then to come on the news, I would say, now that guy probably knows a lot about the Balkans. 
or currency markets or something pretty specific that you need him for. Or possibly he's the Prince of England. That would also explain why I'm looking at his perfectly non-offensive, yet not necessarily alluring face. No, no, I dare not say this. Or I dare say it, but I say it with cover from my friend, my colleague, woman who sits right across from me, June Thomas, royal watcher, royal, <laughs> royal subject. Yes. Are you a royal subject? I'm a subject. I'm a subject of that family. That's the subject, and this is the object. Prince William. Mm. What's going on there? Please... You've looked at him for a long time. Please assess the uh, the visage. The visage. Yeah. Prince William. Is don't a, massage his visage. I would never. Go for it. Prince William is a man who, as a boy, was exceedingly handsome. Okay. His his pulchritude was excessive, you might say. He had, <laughs> almost too much. Almost too much. It the was too British much. British public could not handle. Could not handle it. It was like it was. Oh, the, we're not supposed to touch them anyway. But if we had, <laughs> the hands would have burned, and that was just not acceptable. So, if there is a deity, yeah, she looked down and she said, "We got to do something about this. It's too much. Uh-huh. Those blue eyes, yeah, too piercing, too steely. Dull them up. Dull them up." And you know what? Now, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Mike Pesca. Mm-hmm. And I speak as the daughter of a bald man. The goddess stole his hair. Uh-huh. And that... And, that... and I think it a little bit harmed his, his looks. Okay. There's a way to pull off a lack of hair. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Present company. Uh, included. Included. included uh-huh. Sure. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I do have to say, mm. so, yes, eyebrow up, yeah. not the best, but the area... Uh, between the nose, the philtrum, the area between the nose and the lips. From uh, I, there, think, uh, I believe that's what we call the mouth taint. The mouth, if, if you must, yeah. I taint, go there. <laughs> but from that area on down also could be improved. I don't know about that. I don't think he's doing great. You know, oh, between on. chin, whatever uh, semblance of a chin he has and nose. I don't think he's doing uh, This great. is going too far. You, yeah. we, we, this is more than I can handle. Because, first of all, I am a subject, yes. But also... Like, have you seen the rest of the family? I mean, <laughs> the rest Di- of the country. <laughs> well, and that too. Diana did, you know, it's, the woman did a lot of harm to a lot of things, some good to many things, but her greatest gift to Britain was, as far as it comes to the gene pool, I think yes. you say, of the royal yes. family, to the Windsors. Yes. And, you know, William is his mother's son. And I think let's not get into the, you know, the the mouth, the chin, all of that, because comparatively, it's it's a it's a bolt. Well, let's say something nice. I think the cheeks and nose region. Oh, so if cheeks, William's head cheeks. were a map of England, mm. right around the Midlands, mm-hmm, like yeah. what's a town in the Midlands? Like Leicester. Leicester? Yeah. Leicester? 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 The Lothian? <laughs> that's, up, that's upstairs. That's, okay, sorry. Yeah, that's where his hair <laughs> where used to be. Okay, so right around Leicester's doing all right. Leicester is great. Nottingham is fantastic. Uh-huh. It's just really when you're getting up to Newcastle, Gateshead, yeah. that's where things really go awry. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, around, say, I don't know, slow, mm-hmm. things are great. <laughs> uh, Plymouth, my God, fantastic. Yeah. That's that's worth that, landing on. Winchester, yeah. amazing. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. The cathedral I, to that. Yeah. yeah. I would just say Leicester, Luton, yeah. Nottingham. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. problematic. Not a man from Nottingham. Mm-mm. Newcastle, I'd like to bring Coles there. Yeah. If only to smear them into my eyes because I don't like what I'm looking at. No, no. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I feel the same way. Some actual English knowledge from an actual English subject, June Thomas. Thank you so much, June. Anytime. Well, this is our time, June. And now is the time where I lay some actual information on you, on the audience, saying that the, the person 
of less attractiveness, the guy, marrying the woman of more attractiveness, the female. Science indicates this may be a good thing for their marriage. In a study done by James McNulty of the University of Tennessee, I guess after he was done chasing Omar, published in the Journal of Family Psychology, assessed 82 couples and they videotaped each spouse as they discussed a personal problem. And then they coded both the level of support and the attractiveness of the spouses. So a negative husband would say, ah, it's your problem, deal with it. And a more supportive husband would say, I'm here for you, what do you want me to do? And what the coders, what the researchers found was that wives and husbands behaved more positively when the woman was better looking than the man. It was about a third woman better looking than the man, a third man better looking than the woman, and a third about equal. So the best dynamic in terms of attentive husbands was when the woman was a little more attractive. Dan Ariely, past guest of The Gist, was quoted as saying the finding seems very reasonable. Men are highly sensitive to a woman's attractiveness. Women seem to be sensitive to men's height and salary. And William's tall, and he's heir to a very gilded throne. Oh, by the way, in case you were wondering, would physical attractiveness of a husband be important to a wife? Not really. They're looking for supportive husbands. I would, I would hope that's the dynamic with the royal couple. And you know what? What they represent, that's good news for humanity as well. Because scientists, again, scientists, are saying that women are getting more beautiful. Researchers have found that attractive women have more children than their less attractive counterparts and that a higher proportion of those children are female. And once the daughters become adult, they tend to be good-looking themselves because, you know, genetics. And so the pattern is repeated as women over the generations become steadily more aesthetically pleasing. I'm not being subjective about this or lookist. We're going by facial ratios and so forth. And that dynamic is definitely going on in the royal family. William's dad is Prince Charles, bleh, but his mom is Diana, much more attractive than his dad. He and his brother, fairly attractive. They both marry or are marrying very attractive women. And so far, the fruit of that marriage is the absolutely adorable Charlotte, George, and this new one, baby boy Windsor. So rejoice, rejoice ye England. You have in William an heir and in his third child, yet another spare, even though the dude lacks a great head of hair. And that's it for today's show. Now, we should say the show was recorded before the newest royal baby was named, but just producer Pierre Bienname had in the baby naming pool Alfward. Just senior producer Mary Wilson thought the baby might be named reality winner, but that name's already been taken. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, would like to see them name the baby Dr. Find because then he would be encouraged to pursue a career in medicine, possibly to become Jewish, and his full name would be Prince Dr. Find, which just actually happened. The gist, our choice for royal baby named, how about Ethelred the Ready? Because we already had an Ethelred the Unready, 1014 to 1016, and the name Ethelred still has that stink on it. So let's go with Ethelred the Ready for all Ethelred kind. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. And, and just so you know, I actually said it's the taint of the mouth, and you thought I was saying. 
Oh, the tent. The mouth tent. Oh, yes, but it's the mouth oh, taint. Oh. But okay. that's okay. So, so that's I'll, right. go, I'll go back. I'll go back and I'll say. <laughs> 